This is My Name Is My Name, an Anomalous Humanities podcast with APS. Today's episode is a recording of a panel that was uh, held at this year's American Academy of Religion in San Diego uh, in November. The theme of the panel was Doing Violence to Theology, and you're going to hear from uh, Sean Kapanier. Kate Tomas, Amoria Jones-Armstrong, and Janice McRandall on that theme. Sean and Kate speak first, uh, followed by Amoria and Janice responding to each one of them respectively. It's an interesting session, and I think if you take the time to listen, you're going to find something that you find challenging to your own perspective, uh, your own sense of what theology is. For me, I find it interesting because I think, you know, we, we inherit these traditions and it's not entirely what we do with them. We can't just escape them. And yet many of us don't want to affirm them and play by the rules of those traditions, uh, fit where we're supposed to in those traditions. And so we engage with them. We try to understand them uh, in order to escape, uh, even if that's not a possibility in any real sense since even if we do get out in some way we're still marked by those traditions we're still bound to them in that sense of uh, religion you know to rebind and in some way i think maybe some of us find a way to find pleasure in that binding as long as we can find some way to control it um, to make it not so damaging or to turn it into something else, something that maybe the tradition didn't even see itself doing. I don't know, maybe that Christianity is a special case here, but I have a feeling that in some way all traditions are like this. Anything that tries to reproduce itself uh, always runs the risk of becoming a cancer in the way that cancer cells are just cells that refuse to die and they keep growing and traditions I think can can metastasize in the same way and so doing violence to theology might also be a way of performing a kind of chemotherapy on that metastasized tissue the different responses I think that are present uh, in these four talks uh, speak to the fact that this kind of chemotherapy isn't as straightforward as the biological medical kind um, that we have to keep experimenting. Anyway, here are uh, Sean, Kate, Amoria, and Janice on doing violence to theology. So I should say at the outset, uh, and if anyone's doing the conference bingo, then I'm like, really sorry for the fact that this is an annoying move. Uh, but this is part of a larger project. In-progress uh, uh, in, 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 in MA thesis, actually. Uh, and I think I should begin by saying a couple things about that larger project. Uh, not everyone has the same sheet, so if you don't have it, you don't have it. Uh, uh, and how this particular piece fits into it. So there's been a lot of attention given recently, uh, an explosion since around 2008, uh, to the question of credit and debt. 
Uh, in some ways, this is a development of a much longer strand in the attempt to think contemporary capitalism. Since at least the late 70s, the Earth has been trying to come to terms with the perceived shift away from what's come to be known, uh, variably as Ford, uh, Fordist capitalism, to what's been variously called late or communicative capitalism. Uh, and the recent attention to debt uh, is embodied especially in the work of David Graeber, Maurizio Lazzarato, uh, and a host of others, attempts to fix the specificity of this shift uh, by thinking of it as a foregrounding of a relation that's not new, but it's perhaps been particularly intensified under communicative, communicative capital, uh, the relation between creditor and debtor. Uh, credit and debt, the story goes, are the primary exploitative relation under capital, and while debt and obligation might go back to the very basis of society, uh, the current situation in which we find ourselves, that of social relations interiorized in terms of an in-principle infinite debt, is the specific inheritance that capitalism is bequeathed by Christianity. Uh, so what I'm interested then is two things. Uh, first of all, I'm interested in the specific shape of that Christian inheritance, uh, and I take it that Christian theologies of redemption and practices of penance are the privileged place to look for that inheritance. Uh, and second, as will become clear during the course of the paper, uh, I'm interested in the limits of debt as an account of both distributions of power in communicative capital and in Christianity. Uh, so I'm interested in what's occluded by the horizon of debt. <clears throat> so in the 16th chapter of the first book of his Curdeus Homo, uh, Anselm of Canterbury begins a lengthy diversion from his otherwise meticulously streamlined treatment of the necessity of Christ's incarnation and atonement. Uh, Anselm's digression pricks up a prior Augustinian notion, the numbering and replacement of he by humans of fallen angels. So, quote, uh, It should not be doubted that reasoning beings exist in a rationally calculated and perfect number known in advance by God, and thus it would not be fitting for it to be greater or less. For either God no, does not know what number would be best for reasoning beings to exist, a false supposition, or, if he does, uh, he will bring it about that they exist in the number which he will recognize to be most fitting for this purpose, end quote. Uh, so the paradox is either that the angels were created in the correct number in the beginning, uh, and thus there are now gaps in that number, or God made extra angels, and thus in some sense created the necessity that some would fall, since for there to be more angels than needed, uh, would contravene the perfection of God's ordering of the angels. It might come as no surprise, then, that the question concerning angels is a question of God's economy. Uh, how is it that this aporia to be, is to be reconciled with God's administration of the world? Uh, it'll also come as no surprise that the history of atonement is one of the privileged places where economic theology is worked out in explicit detail. After all, where is God's administration of the world more evident than in God's active intervention as the God-slash-man? And so economic theology has been concerned first and foremost uh, with an economy of salvation, of a certain administrative dispensation according to which the world is rec reconciled to God's order and purpose. Uh, but what this digression into angelology reveals, uh, in addition to the connection between atonement and economy, is a certain relation between economy and theodicy. After all, the reason the problem of fallen angels appears as a scandal is that the choice isn't simply between two versions of the ineffectuality of the divine economy, but between ineffectuality and something more sinister, between gaps in God's economy created by the fallen and a God whose economy in some sense presupposes evil and as integral to its effect. <clears throat> so as anyone familiar with Anselm's account of atonement will recall, uh, the question of atonement is first of all a question of debt, a uh, debt of honor. Uh, departing from God's intention for humanity, humans remove from God some of the honor that God is due. 
Humans cannot repay this debt of honor, which is infinite, uh, through finite penance, and since God's honor must be satisfied, God is the only one who can restore this honor in full. Uh, on the other hand, since the debt specifically concerns the removal of humanity from God's governance and will, uh, it is necessary that the satisfaction of this debt come in the form of a reconciliation of humans to this will. <coughs> At stake is the question of the effectiveness of God's economy, whether or not the order of creation proceeds according to God's will. If the recompense given for this debt is not proportional, Anselm argues, some sin would remain unregulated, quote, which cannot be the case uh, if God leaves nothing unregulated in his kingdom, end quote. Uh, so the need for satisfaction follows from this, good, uh, from this question, which operates on the paradox articulated above, opposing the effectuality and the goodness of the divine economy. Because it would mean that God failed or regretted the original creative intent that is transgressed by sin, quote, God cannot remit a sin unpunished without recompense, that is, without the voluntary paying off of a debt, end quote. Uh, importantly, Anselm sees no contradiction between the necessity of pleas for forgiveness and the necessity of a full repayment of the debt. Uh, quote, it is to no avail that someone who is not making payment says forgive, and the very reason why someone who is making payment makes supplication is that this very fact of his supplication is a contingency of relevance to the repayment of the debt, end quote. So in other words, the poles of the creditor-debtor relation between God and human, while remaining infinite, still provide the terms under which humans may be figured or narrated within the divine economy. The debtor may be infinitely removed from equality with her debt. Uh, she may have infinitely little in common with what she owes, but this gap between her privative actuality and the telos that is promised her on credit uh, still renders her visible as a figure in this economy. This is the significance that the injunction to request forgiveness holds. To cry forgive becomes the minimal condition to be figured in being. It is a condition not of being specifically credited, but of general, but uh, <clears throat> a condition not of being specifically credited, but of general credibility. A condition for being the kind of person who can be credited at all. Uh, this injunction further reveals that the poles creditor-debtor are poles articulable within a general commonality of credibility. Both of these poles, therefore, are suspended within uh, this commonality of credibility uh, and are opposed to that which cannot be credited. Damnation, as that which cannot be credited, is not so much a matter of debt as a matter of exclusion from the continuum credit debt. Anselm's linkage of atonement and angelology reemerges in the second book of Curdeus Homo, uh, in particular by connecting God's dispensation for humans with their assumption of the roles of the angelic fallen. Anselm finds it necessary to deal with the question of an atonement for angels analogous to that which is dispensed for humanity. Why is it that angels could not return to their places? Uh, what makes this sort of reconciliation offered to humanity impossible for angelic beings? Uh, for Anselm, there are two factors which prohibit an atonement offered to angels. The lack of an effective possibility of recapitulation and the lack of a medium of transmission between angels. Uh, the second of these factors has a certain priority of the first because the impossibility of a recapitulation is tied back in part to this lack of a medium of cir circulation. For an atonement to be dispensed to angels, it would have to be possible to have an angel god, but, Anselm argues, just as it was not right that a man should be restored by another man who is not of the same race, even if he were of the same nature, uh, similarly, it is not right that an angel should be saved by another angel. Uh, even if you were of the same nature, since angels are not of one race, as human beings are. In other words, angels are by nature generic. Each angel 
constitutes a kind or genus of its own. There's no mechanism of kinship or descent which links angels to each other. This lack of communicability gives us in turn the reason that any recapitulation of their original fall is out of the question. Each of the angels has a solitary agency attributed to their fall that humans by definition do not. Uh, and as a result, recapitulation would entail each angel recapitulating his own fall, uh, paying singular recompense, which, according to Anselm's calculus, could never become equivalent to the debt incurred in full. Quote, I do not say this on supposition that the value of the death of Christ does not outweigh in magnitude all of the sins of mankind and the angels, but because unalterable logic opposes the granting of relief to fallen angels. End quote. Uh, even though infinite value is generated in the recapitulation and atonement performed by Christ, this infinite value cannot affect a repayment of angelic debt. Uh, there's simply no medium of exchange, no common currency, which would render these values communicable. Kinship, that which angels lack, is the basis of a communicability of debt and credit, a lack which forms the basis of damnation. Without kinship, Without a medium of credible transmission, the damned are figurable only as nothing within the economy of credit and debt. Uh, and I think, just to uh, diverge for a second here, I should really mark my own debt to Daniel Barber, uh, who's kind enough to talk through uh, and sort of help me clarify a lot of these relationships. Uh, and I say this because a lot of these conversations revolve around material he hasn't published, and so there's no way to like properly cite. So this is my improper citation of some of that material. Um, so, uh, what medium of kinship or exchange can allow us to think the specific difference between the demonic uh, as a figure of absolute damnation and kinship of debtors? To think this difference, to think human damnation in its specifically Christian form, uh, we might turn to Gil Anajar's uh, recent attempt to think through the Christian question, uh, in which what comes to the fore is the question of blood. Uh, blood, Anajar claims, quote, counts, and then there are bloods that count less. Uh, within the expansive logic of circulation and flow, there occurs or recurs a difference between bloods. This essential, seemingly natural and universal feature brings, back, brings us back to the question of walls and separation. It should become increasingly evident that this difference between bloods, blood as a site of difference, is constitutive of a history of blood, end quote. Uh, so central to the question of bloods is the question of community. <laughs> what constitutes the shared substance of a community. Uh, Anajar invokes Roberto Esposito's distinction between an earlier Greek understanding of community in terms of a munis, a gift given by the members, and the modern notion of community. Uh, in this sense, community is seen in its true dimension, uh, Esposito claims. Uh, so community is an obligation levied on its members, uh, a debt incurred. And modern community, on the other hand, is generally thought in terms of an immunity, uh, in terms of a shared substance or possession uh, that's already given and must be protected. Uh, Anajar locates the basis of this shift much earlier than Esposito does. The shift of Munis is not located with Hobbes and Locke, but with the advent of Christian community. Christianity, he claims, simultaneously invented the community of substance as the community of blood. Uh, so the community of blood concerns an understanding of kinship, genealogy, and lineage in Christianity in which consanguinity and kinship gradually come to lose all distinction. A kinship of blood is different, for instance, than one of Hebrew flesh and bone, or for, from Roman consanguinity, uh, when blood does not unite a family, nor even differentiate between families, but defines a relation between a male and uh, 
male and female heirs according to a theory of the flow of bloody semen from male genitalia. Uh, so the shape of blood kinship is perhaps best articulated in terms of what Anajar calls the Eucharistic matrix. Uh, drawing on the work of Carolyn Walker Bynum, uh, Anajar points out that the medieval debates over blood relics uh, did not rely, uh, did not concern issues of authenticity or correct Eucharistic piety primarily, uh, but concerned a central question in the figuration of the Eucharist, a uh, question of the relations between and the relative status of bloods. These debates were a matter of the relation of the body and blood of Christ to each other and to his person, on the one hand, uh, and a question of how Christians can gain access, access to the sanguis Christi which saves. The pure blood of Christ is the mechanism that communicates salvation, but how? In short, it communicates by transforming that with which it is joined. Uh, the debate over the identification of the blood of Christ in the Eucharist is also a debate over the nature of identity as such, because it is a debate over the circulation or transformation, uh, the conversion, of blood that occurs in the Eucharist. The blood of Christ as an animating force transforms the one who drinks it. it Christ's pure blood transforms the impure blood with which it comes into contact, inverting the traditional logic of eating and drinking, whereby food becomes the body. In the Eucharistic matrix, the body becomes that which it drinks. Uh, already there is a basis for the differentiation of blood. Uh, if, for if the pure blood of Christ transforms as it circulates, then, to put it simply, uh, Christian blood becomes that which, mediated by the Eucharist, stands differentiated from other blood, impure blood. Uh, blood kinship is born in the possession of the blood of Christ. Further, insofar as the ability to be narrated within a community is still only possible on the basis of a shared obligation, a common munis, it is only in terms of a kinship of blood, a conversion or induction into blood of Christ, uh, that one can be figured as owing and therefore of being open to redemption. So who exactly possesses blood? Who can be saved? Anselm's angelic matrix goes some way towards pointing us to the basic structure of damnation. The, the demonic cannot be incorporated by the blood and possesses no kin. <coughs> demonic non-blood, then, points to a limit in the economy of redemption, but it's crucial to note uh, that this limit is constitutive of an economy of redemption. The figure of the demonic is the figure of that which is, from the point of view of this economy, uh, strictly nothing, a lack or privation in the order of redemptive being. This lack, however, is not posterior to redemptive being. The excision of demonic non-blood and non-Christian non impure blood is an anterior condition for this economy to function. Uh, so, just to sort of end up, uh, to return to the project I outlined at the outset, then, uh, what Anselm's and my own digression into angelology reveals is that the question of credit and debt, no matter how much suffering its asymmetry poses, uh, is by necessity a posterior question to that of the credible and the damned. Further, the specifically Christian modulation of this divide, the shape of which is inherited by communicative capital, uh, distributes damnation differentially across bloods. Uh, to repeat Anajar once again, blood counts, and there are bloods that count less. Uh, but to this formulation, we might add a specific nuance. Not only do some bloods count less, uh, but for some bloods to count, other bloods must be excluded from calculation. Credit and debt marks a continuum with a certain amount of reciprocity between creditor and debtor that is prior to and bear, uh, 
sorry, but this continuum relies on a non-reciprocal relation and antagonism in the precise sense that is prior to and bears on the suffering imposed by debt. The horizon of debt, taken as primary, precludes the narration of damnation uh, as a foreclosure of figuration and kinship. And one should he think here of the medieval Jew and Arab, modern blackness and indigeneity, a whole series of antagonisms wherein damnation is performed prior to or at the exclusion of debt. Well, I, I've cut down this paper a little bit from... I've got to take these shoes off because they're ridiculously painful. I wore them because it's like doing violence to theology and they're like violent shoes, but they're actually giving me pain. Um, I cut down this paper by about 300, 400 words, um, and then the printer didn't work, so I've got the original paper here, so I'm going to try and, like, not reread the, the, the same bit. So, um, also, I'm going to take this off. I'm not, I'm not Sean or Janice and Kate... But, um, <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. Right, so what I'm doing today is um, looking at mystical texts or the texts of female mystics that have been used by um, the Catholic Church, really, um, to endorse a very particular form of femininity. And what I'm doing is showing how I think that these texts are very problematic um, because they describe a very particular type of relationship between the mystic and God, and that this relationship is actually an abusive relationship, um, you know, God being the abuser. So I've presented this before, and it went down about as well as you can imagine in a conservative uh, theological conference, so hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> um, so um, I seem to have spent much of my life reading Christian texts that most people have found to be inspirational and positive, and finding them quite the opposite. Um, I'm not sure if this is something to do with me or the texts, but I actually think that it's something to do with the texts. Um, I'm generally interested in challenging dominant readings of certain texts that are used as examples of the ideal Catholic femininity. And the texts that we're going to look at today are written by women endorsed as mystics by the Catholic Church. So these are sort of the, the, the writings of the very highly sanitized and edited writings of um, women that have been endorsed you know, uh, posthumously as, as uh, like proper mystics. Um, these texts, I propose, betray a very particular model of relationship with God that Catholic women are encouraged to emulate. And this is very problematic, of course, because um, I argue that this, this relationship is abusive. Um, so first of all, I'm going to question the definition of mysticism very, very briefly. Obviously, we have 15, 20 minutes, um, or at least problematize it. And then second, show how I think it can be better understood. And finally, show how this new way of understanding mysticism can change the way that we understand this relationship between God and mystics. And obviously, this is very important. I mean, I, I think so. Um, so traditionally, mystical experience... Um, is characterized by this idea of passive reception. So the mystic is somebody that just receives information or communication from God, um, and there's, no, there's not really necessarily a, a sort of dialectical engagement. But I think that this is wrong. Um, and actually, when we study the mystical texts themselves, it supports this view that mystical experience actually has the hallmarks of dialogue. But this sort of this this dialogue um, is is the thing that we see edited out when it's represented or presented by um, as as a way of engaging with with God. Um, so it seems plausible to me to distinguish between general mystical experience and communication 
from God. So even if the definition of mystical experience is contestable, I think that this, this distinction um, is important. So divine communication is a very specific type of mystical experience. And dialogue is a type of communication. So what I'm um, arguing is that actually this is dialogue, it's not just communication. But we need to distinguish, like, what's the difference between communication and dialogue? Um, I did have slides for this, but we don't have PowerPoint, so I'm going to have to talk you through the, 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 the slides. Um, so in essence, dialogue obviously differs from passive reception in, in I think, three key ways. Um, the first difference concerns participation. So dialogue necessitates intersubjective interaction. It's not something one does to another, and it's not something that is done to oneself. You know, in order to dialogue, you have to have two parties. Um, thus, the involvement of at least two subjects is implicit in any understanding of dialogue with the divine. Now, obviously, this brings up a, a, big, a big question. Um, these subjects don't need to be equal, even epistemolog epistemologically. So, for example... You know, with with a sort of um, pedagogical dialogue, it's not that both people have to know the same amount of information or the same information, um, and nor do we even have to prove the existence of the other interlocutor. So, for example, it doesn't matter. We're not. I'm not certainly not concerned as to whether God exists. I don't. I don't really care for, for generally. I don't care. But um, for, for this argument, it doesn't matter um, because. It's, it's, the important point is that the mystics believe themselves to be in dialogue with another person or another, another being or someone else. Um, it's enough that they understand themselves to be engaged in a dialogue with the divine. So the second um, way that passive reception is, is, is different from dialogue is that dialogue is responsive. Right? So when one engages in a dialogue, one responds to another's action. As the dialogue continues, the response shifts back and forth between those dialoguing. It's not just, you know, passive reception. And thirdly, dialogue has impact on the content of the dialogue. So when one is dialoguing, the content of the dialogue changes. A dialogue is an organic, shifting thing, and it changes depending on the response of the partners, and it can't be controlled. So what I'm going to do is examine some textual evidence to support this thesis that mystical experience is not merely noetic, it's not just about the, the sort of content, um, but it's, it's a dialogical event. And this is pretty easy to find. I mean, you know, for example, the first place that one would go to, to, to look for evidence of dialogue um, is Catherine of Siena, of course, whose writings are called The Dialogues. Um, and the interactions that Catherine describes assume a question and answer format. So Catherine asks God something, um, she calls him the truth. Um, he, she asks him a question and he answers with a very long explanation. So this is the nature of that, of that particular mystical text. And these dialogues evidence an engagement not just by Catherine with God, so it's not just that she's you know, asking him something and engaging with him, but importantly, um, by God with Catherine. So it is, it is like a, a, a changing um, dialogue. She's not just an empty vessel that receives information and writes it down carefully. Um, she's actively engaged in this, and so is he, apparently. And it, it is a he for Catherine. Um, so God is responsive to her. And this responsiveness is what marks Catherine's and the testimony of individuals like her out from other passive mystical experience. Because, of course, there are many examples of passive mystical experience. We can find other mystics that, you know, claim to just receive um, visions or, or information and, and write it down. But um, it's, it's actually more rare to find that passive uh, sort of experience. 
So Catherine writes that the divine wishes to, quote, satisfy the desire of that soul, end quote, to be shown more visions that would explain something that the divine has stated. So she, she says that God actively wants to explain more to her. And she often asks for further visions or information. So God will show her something and she'll actively ask, can you show me more about this? I don't really understand. Give me more information. And God engages with her specifically. So he's not just engaging generally with humankind. Um, or He engages about specific particular subject matters. And she asks for clarification and explanation. Quote, I perceive two other points concerning which I fear that they are or may become stumbling blocks to me. I beg, Eternal Father, that before I leave the subject of these states of tears, you would explain these points also to me. End quote. So she implores the divine to give further detail, and his response is individual and specific. Quote, the eternal God turned the eye of his benignity, I can never say that properly, is it benignity, benignity, anyway, um, and mercy upon her, saying, oh, best beloved, dearest and sweetest daughter, my spouse, rise out of yourself, open the eye of your intellect to see me, the infinite goodness and the and ineffable love which I have towards you and my other servants, end quote. There are other examples of such responsive dialogue in the dialogues of Catherine of Siena, as well as the Scivius of Julian of Norwich and the life of Teresa of Avila and the correspondence of Hildegard from Bingen. So we can find lots of these sort of examples of sort of um, responsive dialogue. But why is it important? So this is fine. Like, okay, we can easily say that the that, that mystical experience is generally, well, not generally, well, I would say it's generally categorized as, as dialogue, but why is this important? Um, well, because it indicates something about the nature of God. I mean, if we take this seriously, that the, a dialogue involves two parties, um, the value and the meaning of the texts that contain these dialogues, you know, suddenly we, we, this changes them, I think. Um, and, and this is why I think this is, this is generally important. But before we go on to why I think this is problematic, or rather why I think this way of engaging um, that these, these dialogues betray is important and problematic. Um, I've got to go through this sort of objections um, to the claim. So the objections to the claim that, that the mystical experience generally is, is categorised by dialogue. First, consider the form of mystical dialogues. Often, although not always, female mystic texts were dictated to or written by male spiritual advisors. So they didn't actually have very much control um, necessarily over the the way that these texts were produced. But more importantly, it could be argued that these texts have their dialogical form as a result of this production. You know, so if I'm dictating something to you um, for whatever reason, it, it may make sense that you know, it sort of ends up as a dialogue. Um, but it actually isn't really what we see in these texts. Even if they were um, written in such a way, you know, i.e. dictated, these texts clearly report dialogue between God and the mystic. So this isn't just like a, a mis misunderstanding. Um, you know, this is explicitly God replies and God says this. Um, an example of this is the Legenda Major, which is translated into the, the, the life of Catherine, written by her spiritual advisor. Um, Raymond of Capua, and in this text, Catherine claims that God himself engages with her. The question and answer format is part of the experience, so it's not just a way of explaining the experience to her biographer, it is the experience, that it is this, this dialogue. The second objection may be that Catherine of Siena or Julian of Norwich's dialogues are actually forms of self-analysis, so 
um, rather than dialoguing with the divine, the accusation could be that they're actually dialoguing with themselves. Um, classical psychoanalytic theory describes the potential for an individual to fruitfully engage in analysis with themselves via self-analysis. Um, but it, this is also clearly not what's happening. So first, the textual evidence does not support this at all. Um, secondly, the mystics explicitly say that they don't understand themselves to be self-analyzing. I mean, Teresa is really famous for explicitly explaining in detail how she knows how her locutions are not a product of the intellect or understanding, but are distinctly different. And she spends some time sort of making this point. Um, she says here, um, quote, I explain also how these locutions that come from good spirits differ from those that come from the evil ones and how they may be, as sometimes occurs, caused by the intellect itself, end quote. She distinguishes between the locutions she receives from God and those from other sources and concedes that it might be possible to fool oneself into believing one is talking to God, but she knows that this is not the case. And then I have a long quote, which I shan't read to you because without the slide, it would, you'll get lost in it, um, where she just says that it's you know completely different. Um, and clearly, really, what we see is that these mystics believe themselves to be conversing with the divine, not simply themselves. Um, Catherine's dialogues have the tone and character of an individual conversation with their lover. Um, as they progress, her relationship deepens. So we don't just see the content changing within a very short space, so within like one question. We see throughout the, the course of her texts over years, um, the nature of this relationship shifting and changing. So this is clearly not a person engaged in self-analysis. Um, the text shows that Catherine thinks she is in dialogue with a responsive partner. And as she says, quote, I think it would be a marvel if any experienced person were taken in unless he deliberately wanted to be. So this is, this is you know, as far as these mystics are concerned, they're not, they're not um, talking to themselves. And specifically in self-analysis, the analysis understands themselves to be dialoguing with themselves. It's like a characteristic of it. Um, and they may be surprised by what they uncover, but they're not deluded that they're engaging with anyone else. So there's a separate question, which is really, again, something I'm not particularly interested in, in which is, you know, are mystics deluded generally? Um, but this, this is almost irrelevant here. Um, as far as they are concerned, there is a, a definite um, dialogue going on. And the final and perhaps most interesting objection to this claim, that it's a dialogue and not passive reception, concerns the nature of the dialogical partners. And this is what I think is important. So if mystical experiences are dialogues with the divine, and dialogue implies an exchange of information, or at least an organic changing content to the dialogue, how can this be possible with God? So can God ever be a dialogical or a dialogue partner in, in the true sense? Um, this is pertinent because we face the following question. If dialogue changes those who engage in it, can God, all-powerful, all-knowing, immutable, be changed by this dialogue? Um, and the answer, of course, is that she cannot. Um, she can't hold both these, these qualities. Um, so if we return to the texts, in exploring mystical testimony, we can make some sense of this, I think. Mystics understand themselves to be in dialogue with the divine, but when these women were first approached by God, before they were confident and experienced in what was demanded of them, we see something sort of very different than this confident dialogue. 
With the exception of Catherine of Siena and Julian of Norwich, both of whom actively begged God to share his pain and suffering with them, almost all of the mystics describe not wanting this, this gift. And I use this term like problematized because I think it's one of the most disturbing, problematic terms that we see in, in theology, this idea of gift and suffering as gift. And it's always women that have to bear this suffering and be bloody, you know, grateful for it. And, and I think this is, this is part of why we have this as a, a trope within theology, is these texts. Um, so these women reject it. They don't want to have this dialogue with God. Um, they're scared of this divine voice. And in Teresa's case, they're actually angry that it's been thrust upon them. And as time goes on, as God continues to insist upon their receiving his divine gift, as they're gradually worn down by frequent communications, what we see is eventual surrender in the texts of these mystics. So what I'm saying is, firstly, it's a dialogue. Secondly, it's a dialogue that is actually quite harassing for some of these women, for most of these women. And eventually we have this surrender. Um, so I think Sarah Coakley would love, would love this idea of surrender. Um, as the translator of Teresa's life describes the text, quote, in it, we see how a self-willed and hysterically unbalanced woman who seemed on the way to becoming a worldly nun of the conventional sort was entirely transformed by profound experiences. So, I mean, if any of you read, have read um, the, the Life of Teresa, this is Cohen's translation, and I think he's a terrible misogynist, and I use that word with full weight. I think he, he really hates women, and particularly Teresa. Um, I, I think it's very problematic, this, this translation. Um, and what exactly does he mean by worldly none of the conventional sort we can only imagine? Um, but I think that it's safe to assume that Cohen's worldly none references this old dualism where worldly recalls the body and thus the sexual body. Um, Teresa is one of the most interesting mystics, I think, to engage with when trying to work out the nature of the relationship between mystics and God, because she seems the most human. And when we... Um, look at her writing, it's, although heavily edited, and even in, in, the, in the life she says, she describes the process of having to edit this autobiography for the Inquisition, knowing that the Inquisition, um, Inquisitors would be reading this, despite that it still really maintains this, in, this incredible humanness. She writes in the third person um, that it was, quote, at the command of her confessor that she were to submit to write the autobiography. Um, and that sh had she not been allowed to describe her, quote, grave sins and wickedness, um, so she wanted to describe significantly more of, of the reality of, like, who she was as a person, but they were like, no, you don't want to tell people about this stuff. Um, but despite this editing, it's clear that Teresa had a very worldly life before her serious illness and conversion at the age of 40. So it's at the age of 40 that she actually eventually agrees, okay, all right, I, I give up, we'll, 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 we'll go down this path. Um, she never really wanted the life that she ended up living. She did not court a relationship with God. She rejected his advances again and again before finally surrendering, this is her word, surrendering at the age of 40, which was really old for the 16th century. I mean, 40's like young now, but not then. Um, she had previously been living within a convent since she was 19, but like many convents of the time, it was very lax. And this is the, the word that Cohen uses, lax. Um, lacked a sense of, many people just lacked a sense of vocation. They weren't there because they were religious. They were there because it was a safe space for women. Um, 
And, Kath, and Teresa eventually had a revelation or conversion that leaves her lax surroundings to set up the reformed order of Carmelites. So, you know, she had a pretty sweet setup until 40 and then, you know, eventually surrendered and said, OK, fine, I, I, I'll set this seemingly very austere um, order up. So God took 28 years to win over Teresa. So bear in mind, she started having these visions um, 28 years uh, ago. She describes this struggle, describes it as a struggle, and claims that she, quote, seems deliberately to have sought ways of resisting favours which his majesty granted me, for I knew that I was obliged to serve him, end quote. Her resistance and eventual surrender to his command was slow, painful, and in fact violent. Therese was brought to the point of death by a serious illness, we think malaria, and on her deathbed she recalls, quote, of the 28 years since I started to pray, I've spent more than 18 in this strife and contention between converse with God and the society of the world. Right? So she was wanting to have a good time and yet had this continuous uh, pressure from God. Teresa's relationship with God was neither natural nor easy. And this is, I think, really important because this is what we're presented as Catholic women, that, you know, our relationship with God should be natural and easy. And this natural and easy is a form of submission. And it's, it's, it's really distressing, I think, and, and problematic. Um, she, just, she, she says that only once she'd surrendered to him that she's able to look back on her rejection, her rejection of God, and reframe it. And even after reframing her experience of being pursued aggressively by God, quote, when you see how important it is to you to have his friendship and how much he loves you, you must rise above the pain of being so much in the company of one who is so different from you. I mean, that's like a quite sinister line, I think. Um, the pain of being in the company of one who is so different from you. I mean, it doesn't sound very nice. It sounds like you know, God was harassing Teresa. We can le read her life as a record of complex and long-term grooming by a male God insistent that he will have his way. Like many cases of abuse, the survivor marks a point in her experience where she changes her opinion of the abuser, where she reframes the experience that was once horrific and scary, like 28 years of, of this, into a safe narrative. After 28 years, Teresa eventually surrenders, relinquishes her, quote, stubbornness. Praise be to God who gave me life to escape so absolute a death, she cries. And we find this elsewhere. This is not just Teresa. Another female mystic hounded by God until she relinquished and surrendered was Hildegard. Quote, but I, though I saw and heard these things, refused to write for a long time through doubt and bad opinion and diversity of human words, not with stubbornness, but in the exercise of humility, until laid low by the scourge of God, I fell upon a bed of sickness. Then, compelled at last by many illnesses, and by the witness of a certain noble maiden of good conduct, and of that man who I secretly sought and found, as mentioned above, I set my hand to writing. While I was doing it, I sensed, as I mentioned before, the deep profundity of scriptural exposition, and raising myself from illness by the strength I received, I brought this work to a close, though just barely in 10 years. And I spoke and wrote these things not by the invention of my heart or that of any other person, but as the secret mysteries of God, I heard and received them in heavenly places. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, cry out therefore and write thus. 
The patterns in mystical testimony resemble patterns of the cycle of abuse. And this is the slide that I sort of need or, or, or will have to describe to you. Um, so in 1979, <coughs> Leonor Walker, a psychologist who worked with female victims of male violence, developed a social cycle theory to explain patterns of behaviour that she saw in abusive relationships. Um, and basically, it contains four cycles, which I'll sort of show you here. Um, so the first is... Uh, well, it goes from the first to the second to the third, and then it is a cycle. So after the fourth, it goes back to the first again. All four stages of this cycle are described in Teresa's testimony. So she describes the tension building. So the first stage is tension building, um, where she resists entering holy orders. So she says, I was still most anxious not to be a nun. I was more intent on the gratification of my senses than on the good of my soul, end quote. New quote, but the Lord was much more anxious than I to place me in a state which would be best for me. So she's writing this post the reframing. This rapidly transitions into an instant of abuse, which is the second cycle, stage of the cycle. Quote, he sent me a serious illness which compelled me to return to my father's house. Thus, without my willing it, the Lord compelled me to do violence to myself. End quote. Teresa quickly moves to the third stage, and the third stage of this cycle is reconciliation. She does as God asks, takes the habit. Quote, in this intention of taking the habit, I was more influenced by servile fear, I believe, than by love. When I took the habit, the Lord immediately showed me how he favours those who do violence to themselves in order to serve him. No one saw what I endured or thought that I acted out of anything but pure desire. The four-stage cycle of abuse in the testimonies of all of the female mystics, um, you know, you can find them in all, all of, these, of, of these texts. I can't really expand on them, obviously, because I'm probably out of time. Um, but why is this important? So I want to go back to the original question. First, is mystical experience mere passive reception? Having turned to the text, the answer is clearly no. Um, mystical experience is presented and understood by the mystics, and this is really all we have, um, as a dialogue. Secondly, if dialogue is an exchange that requires two subjects to interact, can God be a dialogue partner whilst maintaining her divine attributes, or his divine attributes, as, as these mystics describe it, as very much male? Whether God can be a true dialogue partner or not, the mystics certainly believe him to be. And this then raises the question as to whether God is a genuine partner in dialogue or whether he merely pretends to be so. The result is the same. The mystics do what God wants, even if it takes him years of grinding them down to get them to agree. So the next question, is God a harasser, someone who follows mystics around, insisting that they listen to him until they eventually surrender? I think the texts actively support this reading. But what of the mystics, <laughs> you're laughing, Jason, you're responding to me, so, um, who claim universally to love him? So, of course, we have all of these mystics that claim all of them to, to love God. Is this Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, when we look at the cycle of abuse and the four stages of Walker's cycle of abuse, we find this eerie parallel. Like, we can literally find this so easily. This isn't me, you know, like, kind of actively trying to squeeze stuff into this. It's like, I was reading this stuff and thinking, this reminds me of domestic violence. Um, so either God is an abuser, or the female mystics who understand themselves to be in communication communication with God have formulated a very particular relationship to him that is intrinsically dysfunctional. So I don't think we've got a good option here. It's either that he is an abuser or these women have 
you know, created a dysfunctional relationship. Um, and so is it the case, therefore, that every relationship between a woman and a male patriarchal god under patriarchy and specifically within a, a patriarchal hierarchical religion like Catholicism is necessarily abusive? Um, yeah, yeah, obviously. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm responding to Sean's paper, and yeah, thank you for what was a very rich paper. Yeah. Mark that on your bingo sheets. <laughs> no, okay, for real though, I really like your paper, and I think it has um, exciting implications for considering the relationship between violence and theology. Uh, your movement from angelology to God's economy and atonement back to angelology through questions of blood and kinship is very effective, I think, for considering some of the problematics of credibility and the damned in God's economy. Um, toward the end of your piece, uh, you gesture to some of the antagonisms um, that your paper requires us to think with the medieval Jew and Arab modern blackness, and indigeneity, uh, basically certain racial and ethnic antagonisms. You argue that these antagonisms are where damnation is performed prior to or at the exclusion of the imposition of a debt. So I wondered about this performance of damnation as preceding the imposition of a debt and how throughout this paper uh, you seem to be positing exclusion as something located outside of the relations of credit and debt because it is prior to those relations. Lacking credibility, the damned are not thought within the imposition of debt and the aspiration to credit. Instead, the damned and the credible are held within uh, this prior logic of kinship and blood. In particular, fallen angels are eternally damned because of this unalterable logic that is unable to grant relief to the fallen angels. There's no way for the damned to be returned to the relations of debt and credit without kinship and the transmission of credibility. I wonder, though, if thinking of the performance of damnation as an excluded outside or inside does justice to the antagonisms that Sean wants us to consider at the end of his paper. In particular, I think one of the antagonisms you name, blackness and its relation to this framework posited, follows uh, many lines of thought you elaborate while also questioning the framework of an exclusionary outside. In an essay um, titled Accumulation, Dispossession, and Debt, The Racial Logic of Global Capitalism, Denise Ferreira da Silva and Paula Chakravarti also explore the implications of credit and debt for contemporary thought. And they want to note the ways in which debt and credit are racialized. In the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis especially, um, they point to two crucial things about uh, the meltdown. First, black and brown people were targeted for subprime loans precisely because their race was considered a sign of their inability to pay. And second, the assumption of their damnness, their lack in credibility, which would honor their debt, 
was the means to produce a proliferation of credibility for others through the accumulation of wealth. Sean asks, who possesses blood? Which I take to mean, who has blood? Who's considered a part of the Christian community of blood? Whose blood counts? Sean also suggests, in a slight departure from Anahar, that it is not a question of some blood counting more or less, but of some blood being excluded from calculation. If, however, we take the implication of blackness and indebtedness in the predatory mortgage uh, as an exemplification of this logic of credibility and damnedness, might we come to understand the position of the damned as a position of the dispossessed, a position of being property versus being propertied, that is, owning property. It seems to me that we need to extend your thought of kinship as the transmission of credibility to say that this transmission of credibility is also a transmission of an accumulation. What it means to be credible is to have accumulated enough credibility to be out of debt. And for the fallen or the damned who are excluded from redemption, it's not simply because there's not a common currency with which to make the exchange, but because they are the common currency. In the situation of the antagonism between theology and blackness then, what it means to be damned means one is fungible, able to be exchanged. Damnation is not necessarily being excluded from the relations of credit and debt then. Rather, one is eternally in the state of indebtedness. An inescapable debt is demarcated by blackness, one's dampness. But it's precisely this dampness that is also the currency with which the credible, who are able to be creditors and debtors, exchange and accumulate in order to build their credibility. So it's not that some blood is excluded from calculation, but some blood is possessed by another, by the credible. It's not that the damnation of blackness is the exclusion of blackness from the economy, but it's the exchange of blackness that enables the economy's proliferation through the accumulation and sedimentation of blackness as damnation. So I wonder if it would be correct to say that the antagonisms between the damned and the credible occur as the imposition of a debt, at the imposition of an impermeable indebtedness. In some sense, then, I want to emphasize something that I think is present in your paper, but may be understated, uh, that this is a co-constituting imposition, or there's a co-constituting nature between the imposition of the relations of credit and debt and the invention of the difference precisely through this kind of uh, termination of kinship uh, as the reproduction of progeny and into the reproduction of property uh, that happens in enslavement. So if we return to De Silva and Tracovardi, I also want to bring out a final point that the offer of these loans was on the basis of a lie that people who, within this current regime of racial capitalism, lack credit and credibility, were able to have credit and credibility. To me, this lie speaks to the deep suspicion we ought to have towards offers of credibility and credit, which I think your paper 
makes clear for us. Um, for those who are damned or are seeking to be among the damned and the dispossessed, it seems seeking the overcoming of damnation is going to result in the exacerbation of one's damnedness, a more violent imposition of eternal indebtedness. So a question then for you is if we're seeking to do violence to this Christian inheritance of blood and kinship that seeks to accumulate the damned in order to re reproduce its own credibility, um, how might this antagonism of blackness within the regime of racial capitalism come back to bear upon how you have posited this framework as exclusionary? And I wonder if maybe thinking about it as more of a fold or you know, an imagination uh, <laughs> would be more more apt, more accurate of a description because it doesn't seem that this being prior to is uh, necessarily a being outside of, but rather that this being prior to is exactly a kind of interior accumulation that makes the proliferation of this logic possible. And then I wonder... Given the unalterable logic of this uh, eternal indebtedness that the fallen are bound to, what do we do with an unalterable logic? And is there any possibility to, of undoing that? So, thanks for a cool paper. So I'm responding to Kate's paper, which, let's see, I found very erotic. I was hoping that would be bingo. So we already had that. <laughs> but? <laughs> Weaponized? Was that on the other list? I don't have that. For those of us engaged in theological studies, particularly those of us inhabiting spaces of confessional Christianity, the re-emergence, or perhaps some might say discovery, of female mystics in theological and philosophical discourse has been accompanied with an almost exclusively optimistic tone. I don't mean to imply that the complexity of these texts or the ambiguous writer-reader relationship has been flattened entirely, but certainly the female mystics are most commonly held up as radicals, proto-feminists, models of epistemological transgression. I think especially of scholars from Oxbridge, the community that Kate loves so dearly, <laughs> people like Ron Williams, Sarah Coakley, and Janet Martin-Soskis. Against this backdrop, Kate's reading of the narratives of female mystics is a welcome interjection. What does it mean to ignore the resistance of figures such as Teresa? And not only the noetic impulses that lead the mystic to what is commonly described as surrender or submission, but what of the body? How are the bodies of these mystics and the bodies of women encouraged to emulate these alleged heroines of the faith being coerced and disciplined into the full breadth of submission under patriarchy? <coughs> Kate gestures towards the explicit sexual submission before God, and I couldn't help but think at this point in her paper of 
the observation made by Natalie Watson regarding the particular particularity of the female body kneeling before the priest, submitting into the necessary reception of flesh and blood so that her own flesh and blood may be delivered from its impurity. So there's much to think through in Kate's critique of the now popular reading of the text of female mystics. I find Kate's insistence upon the dialogical nature of these mystical experiences loaded. I agree with this assessment, and to be blunt, I find the now frequent totalizing use of psychoanalytic theories to explain the inexplicable in these strange texts hasty and often blatantly inattentive. And so Catherine of Siena is a fine example of this dialogical thesis which Kate uses. When you suggest, Kate, that the mystic's dialogue partner cannot be changed, which is most certainly the orthodox position, the question looms, why not? What would it mean to conceive of prayer and contemplation in this dialogical thesis that you propose, one in which the divine is engaged in a reflexive dialogue? And if the modern mystic can imagine such a possibility, what is being said of her own agency? What is affected, that's a word on the thing, so there you go, what is affected upon the orthodox views of revelation, apocalyptic eruption, divine sovereignty? Is such a recognition the kind of violence necessary, contamination to theology, and more particularly in the realm in which women kneel, pray, wait, and submit? And I don't, I don't actually intend this as a theoretical move, not at all. Is any theoretical move here necessary? Is this not an irregular occurrence and a violent demand upon those who are involved in prayer? I'm more thinking through the practices of subversion in regards to grooming, which you raise. But practices of prayer and contemplation aside, I think Kate's paper opens up, at least to me, more troubling and difficult questions, given the title of this session, Doing Violence to Theology. How is it that theology divides the violent from the peaceful, we ask? For while I'm pleased that Kate is subjecting the optimistic theological discourse of female mystics to its own sovereignty, it's still not clear to me where we are locating violence. And if in reading texts these ways, as simply grooming for abuse, are we positioning ourselves outside of the violent for instance, white feminist reading of womanist Christologies have, at many times, sought to offer corrective over against black liberation motifs, over against black women's bodies, and therefore over against black women's agency. What does it mean to tell a woman that her experience, however retrospectively redefined, is not liberative, as her th own theology testifies? And if the text comes from one already and always marginalised, what does it mean for the writer to be dead, both literally and theoretically? How does one map the multiplicity of contexts, in deference even to violence and violence? I suppose this is a broader question for all of our uh, panellists. How is it that we're conceiving violence? Do we think there is an out? Is nonviolence still a possibility? How is violence connected to power and how is violence mobilised in discourse, in texts and bodies, in our agency, in our intersubjectivity, in our relationship to theology? Now, these are easy questions to ask. I, know, I acknowledge that. 
But given the theme of our session this evening, they seem the kind of questions that we're moving towards. So that's uh, today's episode. I hope you found the remarks interesting. Um, feel free to comment on the Tumblr site. I know no one comments these days, and in some way that's a blessing. I'm sure there's a number of Facebook walls that wish I hadn't commented on whatever discussion was taking place there. And I know there's been many of times where someone's commented on something I've written, and I, I just felt alienated because they, they didn't seem to get it, or they, they read into it some, some of their own perspective. Um, but please, feel free, if you want to try to start a conversation there, you, you should. Um, please uh, rate the podcast on iTunes um, and recommend it to your friends. Um, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking with uh, Alex Dublay, who I've mentioned before. Um, also, Joshua Dubler, talking about mass incarceration and religion. In that same vein, Andrew Diltz will be on talking about uh, punishment and exclusion. Um, Also, Cena Kramer and Robin James, I think, will be coming on the podcast um, as well, and I'm looking forward to to talking with them. As always, I need your help finding more people who might want to sit down and have these conversations, or more people who have lectures that they might want to share using this platform. So email me, my name is my name pod at gmail.com. All right, not gonna lie, it's been a hard, hard month. Feeling, feeling tired. I don't know if it's just winter or some kind of encroaching nihilism. But if you're feeling the same, I hope that you can remember your name is your name. <laughs>